Welcome back, listeners, to another Ag Watchers podcast. Uh, this week, we've got uh, another special guest, uh, stalwart of the wool industry, Josh Lamb from Endeavour Wool Exports. And um, Andrew's with us as well, of course. Andrew Whitelaw, my uh, colleague in arms, uh, also known as Wheat Watcher on Twitter. And you've got myself, Matt Dalglish, uh, Meat Watcher uh, on Twitter. So um, this week, we've, uh, Andrew, we've been very interested in what's been going on at the Senate Estimates hearing, and uh, that was part of the reason why we thought we'd get uh, Josh on, just have a quick chat, the inside uh, goss, what's happening from someone uh, very, uh, very involved in the wool industry. Andrew, did you... Um, I, think, I, think, any- I think you forgot as well. Is Josh, you're also the president of the Council of Wool Exporters and Processors? Uh, yep. yep. That's correct at the moment, yes. So, so yeah, no, it's been an interesting time in the... Uh, in the wool industry, it sort of, it reminded me of, you know, the old days of the grains industry, you know, the, uh, the old, you know, oil for food scandal and, and whatnot and, and yeah. trading, trading with companies with, uh, or, or trading with countries that have got sanctions against them. So yeah. it was, it was an interesting bit of commentary around um, one of the, uh, the emerging markets, which, which AWI have identified is North Korea. Yep. Which is quite unusual because you're not actually allowed to either directly or indirectly trade wool with yeah. North Korea. Yeah. Um, so we, we just thought it was a bit interesting. But our wool still going to North Korea anyway, I would imagine. Oh, look, I, I, I don't know for sure, but you'd have to assume that you know, there'd be wool going or wool products going out of China into North Korea as they do the rest of the world. Um, you know, we, we, we don't vet customers when they ask to buy greasy wool or process wool from us for China. And what happens to it after that um, is, is really not in our space. But, you know, you'd be naive to think that Australian wool isn't going into North Korea. It's just not coming from here directly. So, um, you know, and that, that that obviously happens around the world with, with, with lots of products. I mean, the, between a wool grower and a garment ending up on a rack, there's as many as 15 different parties involved in the process. So how can you actually track that? I guess the issue with the Senate estimates hearing is that AWI have nominated North Korea as a, you know, as a potential growth market. And that might have been a bit of an administrative slip or something like that. But, um, you know, as we know, the sanctions are there. So that's, it's not possible to trade with them directly. But there's no doubt people obviously think that if North Korea, if something ever changed there in the political landscape or the way the country's run, that, that they would be, you know, quite a, a significant consuming country, I'd imagine, as they, as they built wealth, you know, over, over several decades. But as it stands at the moment, you know, it's, it's, it's not a possibility. I reckon it's a long, long way before it's... Uh before it's opened up the guy yeah. I'll, I'll do a bit of a bit of travel dropping you know i uh, i was in north korea probably five years ago and yeah. the we we crossed the border it and between china and china and and korea where there's the uh the friendship bridge yep and and the chinese side of is porsches and flashing lights and everything else and the korean side is well, lucky if there's lights, uh, but but the guides there were telling us that there was a lot of products that do go across the border. Yeah. So raw materials go from China into Korea, and then they process them into other things because it's because the labour costs were yeah nigh on nothing. So yeah, yeah, yeah. So. Look, it's an obvious thing, isn't it? You see, you see Korea and you see China bordering 
North Korea and, and what's gone on there over the last 30 years in those countries. And it's it, it's logical to think that that's that North Korea has that potential. But, you know, I mean, you've been there. It's, it's a long way away. Yes, decades. Yeah. yeah. Interesting you mentioned, um, obviously, clearly, if in different circumstances, North Korea could be a marketplace, um, but not currently. But one of the la- one of the largest rallies in the wool market historically was actually inspired by a Korean um, event, I believe. Josh, if you go back to the the big rally um, around the around the time of the Korean War, wasn't it? Um, yeah, well, that's true, exactly. So, you know, people used to say there's nothing better for the wool market than a than a than a war fought in the middle of winter over oil. Um, <laughs> no, that, that's per- that's a perfect scenario for an Australian wool grower. So, uh, yeah, I mean that, that you know. And Korea or South Korea in general plays a huge role in the wool textile chain. You know, there's a lot of semi-processed wool comes out of Australia into into Korea and a lot of it comes out of China for further processing. So, you know, it's a significant part of the wool chain and it has suffered pretty greatly over the last 12 months, um, which has hurt the carding market in Australia a fair bit. But, um, but, you know, hopefully we're getting closer to those things correcting themselves. But, yeah, they're a significant part of the wool industry. Yeah, but I guess the final final tip on that North Korea is that, you know, if you if you want to get around the sanctions, all you've got to do is find yourself a Jordanian trucking company, and <laughs> <laughs> are they, in the, are they in the yellow pages. Just 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 learn from uh, learn from the grains industry. We've we've done it before, uh, <laughs> although it didn't particularly end up well for 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 most in the industry. Yeah, yeah, no, that's right. When you uh, when you're over in North Korea, we Watcher, um, you were there just purely for for personal reasons. You weren't there for any you know, business related matters or any kind of um, anything you know, to do with uh, trade negotiations. No, I was just there for a holiday and just a, <laughs> just a, just a trip. Surprisingly, very good beer as well over there. Well, very cheap as well, is it? That, it was actually pretty expensive because I think they gouge every. Every uh, every foreign tourist, yeah. and uh, you're only allowed to go to set places. And it was it was probably at that point. I think I, I was living in WA in Perth, which was known for being expensive. And I reckon it was more expensive in Pyongyang for beer than than Perth. <laughs> so uh, so yeah. North Korea North Korea wasn't the only swipe that it was. Uh... There was an AWI in the sent assessment material, was there? Was a there was a, a bit of a, a go at the um, the WoolQ platform, um, Josh, as well. Just give the listeners for those that aren't aware a bit of a quick rundown of what the WoolQ platform is and what it's for, and uh, and then we maybe have a quick chat about um, one of the other concerns the Senate estimates hearing uh, raised there with the cost of that. Yeah, no worries. Look, the the, the WoolQ platform was um, a direct result of. The AWI wool selling systems review of about five or six years ago. Um, out of that review, which was industry wide, um, which was which that review was welcomed across the industry at the time. This was one of the one of the points that came out of that that the industry needed a, a, a digital platform um, to transact wool, and um, the, the sort of the talk at the time out of AWI was that the industry was a bit antiquated and hadn't kept up with the times. Um, which of course is not quite right. Um, this was their answer to try and drag the industry into the into the twenty first century. But when you look at how the exchange of ownership of wool occurs, the only the only part of that that hasn't gone electronic that's still operating as it did a hundred years ago is is dropping a hammer in a sale room. So 
everything up to that point now is now digital and everything after that point is digital, but the physical transaction or, or the sale of the lot is still done manually because it's the quickest and most efficient way to do it. And we've had quite a few electronic platforms over the years. Um, Auctions Plus have had a couple of goes at it. Um, we're trying to launch you know, an electronic auction system, so to speak. And so far, nothing's been able to replicate the pace of the auction room itself. So until someone can come up with that 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 um, that interface or that or that mechanism to do that, then we're probably still going to find ourselves in a sale room. So, so long story short, WallQ came out of that to try and to try and replace the auction room, so to speak. Um, and it hasn't been a been a huge success. The AWI will say that wool growers asked for this platform to to be built, but wool growers aren't. Um, they're, they're certainly not supporting that platform by putting their wool up for sale there. So they did run probably eight or ten auctions last year on it. Um, the actual interface is okay. It's not quick. Um, the actual system itself's not too bad. But, you know, if growers aren't willing to put their wool up there, then the system won't be supported. And that's that's what's happened. Uh, growers bit, bit of a, a self-fulfilling prophecy to a degree that you know it's not working because people aren't putting stuff on there and, and you know they're not putting this stuff on there because it's not working um well it, but, it does yeah. it becomes a bit like that um so and, and you know the auctions plus platform they've got, they've got a static uh, platform there which is which is called wool trade where the wool you know as a wool grower you can put your wool on there you can nominate a price you want for it and it can sit there six, 12, 18 months, um, it might only sit there for a week. If the market picks up, someone might come in and, and pick your wool off. And the, the, the wool queue idea was to create, you know, a regular digital auction uh, that ran every week. And that that hasn't been able to gain traction um, alongside the physical auction. And, and you know, that, that comes back to growers. So growers ask for the platform, but at the same time, they're not putting any wool on it. So therefore, mm. you know, it's sort of sitting there. There are other functions to it. The, the wool queue... The industry was consulted originally when it was being built and the, the idea was to make it a bit of an information portal for wool growers, uh, give them a bit of support about different things, market ideas, um, being able to compare brokers, et cetera, et cetera. So there are other functionalities to it, but the primary the primary purpose of it was an online trading platform and that that you know that hasn't got off the ground really. Mm. It's what something like 900 bales or whatever over the period when, when the Walmart's selling you know, in excess of 35,000 bales or something like that. Is that right? Yeah, that's about right. I think um, I didn't know the exact figures, only what's come out of the, the estimates hearing, but um, we, we participated in the auctions last year, you know, our company, and we were happy to support wool growers through that method. But, um, but yeah, and, and look, timing probably not great. In, in some ways, having COVID should have been the perfect vehicle to get something online going like that because, you know, the restrictions. I mean, we had a lot of trouble trying to keep auctions going last year with social distancing, et cetera. So in some ways it was the perfect scenario for it to, to get a bit of traction. But the other side of it is you had a market that was tanking um, most weeks over a number of months as well. And, you know, that's not conducive to being able to transact wool, um, you know, on, on most days, particularly on a platform like that, which is not as... But in, in the sale room, we've got an auctioneer standing there. They can negotiate straight after the sale, et cetera, and, and WallQ sort of didn't have that functionality last year, so that might have hurt it a little bit, selling a bit more wool when you've got a declining market every week. Andrew's just um, trying to ask a question there, but he's, uh, I think his mic's just gone a bit funny. Here he goes. 
Yeah, so six point three million, I think it cost. Yeah, which is which is a which is yeah. quite expensive, and I suppose it's. I guess like for going back to like other sort of industries, you look at Auctions Plus and you look at Clear Grain, two sort of similar sort of platforms, and but it t- it's taken both of them a long, long time to pick up traction. Like Clear's probably taken ten years. Yeah, it would have to be yeah. ten years now to actually get traction. And I guess World Q is the same. It's it's going to take a long time, and whether it's whether it's going to be funded to keep doing that if it's not having big volumes on it. Well, that, that that's right. and it has only been. I mean, you just mentioned one platform that took ten years. It's only been twelve months. Yeah. Um, all trades been around a lot. The auctions plus side of things has been around probably fifteen years. I'm not too sure how long. Um, it's a different system, of course, but. Um, yeah, look, it's whether or not they want to continue to, to put funds into it. There, there are other things that the platform, you know, has a lot of potential going forward, particularly that bit of an information portal for wool growers. You know, I'll see big scope there with sustainability programs, uh, market information, um, things things of that nature. And that I think that's a big benefit to growers, um, whether the selling side of it can get any traction is another story. So it's not... You know, it's not all lost. There are good things there, but um, yeah, it certainly seems expensive for what it is. Yeah. So moving on, you, your uh, Endeavour Wool Exports is probably one of the larger exporters in recent years, and a big chunk of your of your wool goes into China, or probably the majority of it. What, what are you What are you finding at the moment with these sort of getting access to containers and things? Um, yeah, look, the, the, you know, our, our wool or our export percentage as a company probably mirrors the industry. You know, you're looking at 80% of it going to China and you're looking at the other 20% going to India and Europe and, and smaller customers around the world. And most companies in the industry would probably have a similar similar breakdown, give or take. Uh, the biggest issue the last few months is definitely the shipping side of things. Uh, yeah. it, it's really causing the, the industry as a whole right through you know, right back to the wool grow a lot of a lot of um, a lot of angst because it, in some cases with brokers now they can't receive any more wool. So wool growers are being told not to send you wool in unless you want to sell it straight away because the flow and effect of not being able to ship wool quick enough means that the whole chain in Australia is um, has clogged right up. You know, dumps dumps are at one hundred and twenty percent capacity. Most wool brokers would tell you they're they're at one hundred percent or very close to it as far as storage goes. Uh, exporters, the market's been good for three or four months now, so the majority of wool that's going up for auction every week's being traded on, but it's not. We're not being able to ship it quick enough, so the, the, the chain really is um, reaching a bit of a critical point at the moment. So and I do think it has a, it has an effect on the market over the last few months. It has probably held the market back a little bit because. The way we trade our wool overseas as exporters, we don't get paid until the wool actually, until the vessel pulls away from the port. So yep. if we bought that wool um, this week, for example, it could be five or six weeks before that vessel sails, which means we don't get paid until that happens. And that's um, that's putting a lot of strain on the industry, cash cash flows in general. So, um, yeah, it's been a real problem. It's a global problem, the shipping problem. It's not Australian-specific. Um the role we play in that is wool's considered a backload. 
uh, or commodities out of Australia in general are considered a backload to China. So we're not a priority shipping um, export country, so to speak. Um, containers end up in Australia because we're importing goods out of China and then, you know, we try to backload or shipping companies use other commodities to backload those containers to China. And what's happened, vessels, we've had blank sailings quite a bit over the last 12 months, which means vessels just don't come to the country at all. That means containers get left here. They're not moving back to China quick enough. Um, China's priority at the moment from a shipping point of view is North America. Um, that seems to be where the demand is for, for export goods. America's got its own problems where they don't have enough staff at, at, at ports to unload containers because of COVID issues, et cetera, et cetera, and yeah. it's all just flowing back down the chain to here. So um, shipping companies are telling us it's months away before it, before it can get back to some normality. But, you know, instead of having a vessel depart Australia every, every sort of second day now, we're, we're having weeks where there might be only one vessel two vessels a week instead of eight or ten. So you can see that we're still trying to sell the same amount of wool that we were 12 months ago, but we've only got 30, 30 to 40% of the shipping capacity to move it. So what's the yeah. um what's the sorry and what's the what's the intel with regards to on the ground, Josh, um, and in China in terms of kind of stocks they've got. Like I know there was a stage a year or so back where there was quite a bit of indent buying and they were pretty much just buying hand to mouth and the mills weren't holding a lot of stock of wool. Um, do you know if they've got stuff there or is that going to cause issues then if, if we can't get our wool from Australia across to them um, and they've got nothing there to process, um, you know, is that going to con- kind of continue to cause backlogs further down the supply chain? Um, well, it certainly could. Like from a Merino point of view, I don't believe stock levels in China they're still historically low. And that's, if you go back three, four years ago when the market was reaching record levels, um, you know, the higher the price got, the harder it was to pass on down the chain, the more mills ran stock levels down instead of um, instead of carrying stock. So we went into COVID probably with not a lot of stock and they're coming out of it with, you know, not a lot of Merino stock either. So what they're trying to do at the moment is, is, is build those stock levels up again. Um, China's fairly optimistic for later in the year and going into next year, that market the market will be fairly healthy. So at the moment they are buying a little bit more than they're selling each week as far as tops go to, to try and build those those reserves up. On the coarse edge, your crossbred side of things, it's probably the opposite. Um, we are hearing there are large stocks in China of, of other origin crossbred wolves from South America, from New Zealand, and and, and from Europe. Um, Australian crossbreds are considered the better quality of, of, of those microns, uh, but at the same time, that pipeline is definitely full um, or, or, you know, nearing capacity, and it has been probably for a few years now. So, so yeah, there's sort of two parts of the Merino side. They're, they're, they're definitely not carrying enough stock, um, and that's good That's good for the wool market here in the medium term. But on the core edge, yeah, there's still a few still a few teething problems there. Mm, part of the reason why the crossbred price has been sl- slow to um, sluggish to get moving. Exactly, and that you know, who knows how long that lasts, but it, it, it could be another 12 months before you see any significant recovery, um, whereas Merinos are looking fairly positive. Sorry, Andrew, I cut you off there, mate. Did you have another? No, I was, I was just saying that the, uh, I guess the uh, logistics issue is probably not helped by a uh, blockage on the Suez Canal. And that'll be right. rectified probably in the next two or three days, I imagine. Yeah, the, the, the photos out of that are amazing. You, you see them trying to dig this, these excavators trying to dig the boat out of the side of the, 
it's 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 sort of it probably must be the one of the worst things you could do as a captain of a vessel. <laughs> you know, you could imagine <laughs> this sort of this, we we had it in the past like when I was working in the UK. We used to import animal feeds into Glasgow, and uh, and we had a vessel which was a Panamax, and it blew onto a a sandbank, and it was stuck there for I reckon two or three days, maybe four days. The problem we had is that we didn't have any tugs, or there wasn't enough tugs to actually pull it off. Whereas it, this is a huge vessel, but there seems to be plenty of tugs for for this yeah. one. But it doesn't help things, you know, if, when, when you've got congestion already. Yeah, and... yeah. Well, even our, tra- our transit times to Europe for shipping have gone from around 50 days to 90 days um, during the, you know, because of the COVID issues. So... Transit times to China haven't changed much, but um, it's getting the vessel to sail that's the issue. So, you know, transit times to China between 14 and 20 days, depending on where you're delivering. But Europe's the significant the significant ones where they've almost doubled. So, um, you've also, I guess you've also got as well, like it, it's not just wool either. You know, there's no. obviously things like pulses and grains and, and probably refrigerated containers for, for meat as well are all going to be yeah. Im- impacted by the current, current levels. Yeah, absolutely. And that, um, you know, you read what shipping companies tell us, of, you know, for example, places in Africa where they've got con- empty containers sitting there, it's just not viable to ship there and try and pick them up and bring them back. Even in Australia, we've heard stories of shipping companies sending vessels here to pick up a load of empty containers to go straight back to China, yeah. for example, um, which might only take three to four weeks as opposed to waiting for a backload, et cetera, et cetera. Then the containers have got to be emptied when they get to China, that's seven to eight weeks. Um, so, yeah, and you'd have to think that shipping costs will have to go up coming out of this, I'm sure. Um, yeah, and, and as in general. And then we, we looked at it the other day, and, like, the shipping, it's quite interesting when you look at the, the container rates around the world, and the peak rates are basically anywhere going into or out of China. Yeah. Whereas if you look at, say, east coast of US to Europe, it's pretty much where it, it's pretty much average, really. It's not. It's not massively sort of stronger, but it's the. It's the. Again, like you said, the China to Europe or the China to USA. It's just. Yeah. Absolutely through the roof. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, the cost of bringing a container to Australia is around about um, five to six times what it is for us to send a container back to China. Yeah. So, and I imagine it's probably similar in most countries. Has that increased um, since COVID and all these disruptions, Josh, or is that just the standard? No, just it, it hasn't changed a lot. We've had congestion charges, um, you know, particularly out of Sydney late last year. There were some issues there. Mm. So we've had sort of short-term increases, but we haven't had anything significant. You know, we're expecting it to come. Mm. There's been, a, I mean, it's just such a swag of disruptions that a lot of markets have seen, but the wool one in particular with regards to COVID, um, I mean, from Andrew and my perspective, one of the biggest um, disasters last year was um, was no carding night for the wool industry. We missed out because <laughs> um, of all the because of all the COVID restrictions. Um, but hopefully, it's yeah. going to go ahead this year, Josh. We're, we're eagerly looking forward to well, that- shit stir- shit like us. We get we get a lot of um, great <laughs> tips from the masters of, of the game uh, well, from the carding so night. The only reason we cover wool is, is <laughs> so we can go to the carding night. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure there's people who will tell you their only reason they're still in the trades for guarding that. So, um, yeah, look, it's, it is a highlight of the year. It's, it's, it's great for the industry. And um, 
Uh, that, that we, obviously, we didn't have one last year, but I said to someone this morning, the next karting night we have could go for three days because there's that much material around <laughs> over the last 18 months. But, um, to get through it all is going to take a couple of nights. But, uh, yeah, look, hopefully, hopefully it runs this year. It would be, be great. That'd be good. So in terms of, of the wool market, we, we had that big fall last year, uh, which we had with most commodities, really. We saw a big yeah. fall in that sort of March, April, where nobody knew what was happening. And then it sort of slowly recovered right through the last second half of the year. And, and prices are not terrible at the moment. But what's your, what's your view ongoing? What do you reckon is going to... What's your market uh, look, view? I'm, I'm always fairly, you know, I'm always fairly optimistic in general um, without being naive. But, um, you know, you'd have to think we're stating the obvious, but we seem to be through the worst of things. Um, last year, from a, from a war point of view... Um, we still have other countries to come back online into the marketplace. India's trying to get going. It's it's sort of coughing and spluttering a little bit, but it looks like it's it's starting to, to go again. Um, Europe's still very much, um, you know, they, they haven't come back to the market in a, con, in a consistent manner yet. Um, so, you know, when you look at that market levels, I don't think, too bad you know we've seen the spreads open up on microns this year as well um medium walls look, look to be at reasonable levels so when you consider that you know 20 percent of the, the wool market um or our export market hasn't really come back into the sale room yet i think you know that there's plenty to be positive about going forward obviously global retail is still a long way off where you'd like it to be um that's again another positive for the price of wool so you know, looking forward over the next couple of years, um, I, I, I see pretty good things for the wool market. We've had a price reset as well, obviously, um, coming off the highs of two years ago. Um, wool, you know, when you're talking 22 23 $24 a kilo for, for medium wools, it really was getting almost impossible to pass that price down the retail chain. Um, we've come a long way back off those levels and, and you know, it, it is one positive to come out of the last 18 months with trade wars and COVID that, we have had a bit of a reset in, in the price of wool and that, you know, there's a bit of short-term pain in that, of course, but it does mean that it sets us up for another sort of medium-term run that, um, you know, should be very profitable for wool growers and the industry in general. And, and last year there was a bit of a, uh, there was a lot of talk about the wool stockpile increasing. Yep. You know, there was yeah. sort of, what was that? There was some figures around 2 million bales by the middle of this year. Yeah. What, what are we on track for just now? Are we anywhere near that two million estimate? Or no, look, two, two million was never, you know, that that's impossible because we only we only grow one point six or seven million bales a year, or between one point five and one point seven, depending on what figures you look at. So it's impossible unless we didn't sell a bale of wool for eighteen months. It's impossible to end up with that sort of stockpile. But there's no doubt it's significant, and I think it's, you know, this is the biggest stockpile we've probably seen since the so-called stockpile days of, of the last yeah. I mean, even in the GFC, they didn't hold wool. Growers didn't hold wool like they have in this period, the last 12 months. So, look, there's various figures. It could have been as high as, it could have been as high as four or 500,000 bars. Realistically, it was probably closer to 300. But, you know, there's no set figure out there. It's it's talking to individual brokers and they'll tell you what they're holding. And um, It's a bit of a guesstimate. Most, 
Yeah, a bit yeah, like trying yeah. to figure out how much how much grains out there. Then. Yeah, <laughs> how yeah. much grains in storage? You know. Yeah, exactly. Like it's almost impossible. And the the most significant part of that stockpile seems to be what growers actually held on farm, which is probably more than more than we've realised. We've seen over the last month or two some clips going up at auction. They're selling two clips at once. You know, they've got last year's clip, which is from this time last year, which is a bit drought affected, and then they've got the new season clip next to it. So there's been a fair bit of that go on. Um, but I think if you you know if it peaked around that three to four hundred thousand bars, I think that'd be you know that'd be fair estimate. So, so, so not two million. Definitely <laughs> not two million. So um, but a few more grey hairs if it was two million because we'd we'd have that to come onto the market. So yeah. So yeah, look certainly significant and, and, and the biggest stockpile of the modern times, I think. But um, I'd say the last few months would have put a few holes in that, would have started to, 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 to chip away at it, but it's still there, I think. Right, well, I reckon we've covered everything so far. Matt, you've got anything to... No, nah, I to... think we can leave the uh, we can leave the yacht and the, the decal on the yacht alone. I think we'll, we'll give them a bit of a break, I reckon. Uh, and we've, we've certainly taken up um, loads of your time, Josh. So very appreciative of, uh, of the time spent... Um, Teaching a couple of novices in the wool sector, um, you know, from, from hearing from experts, always good. Um, so I appreciate your time. <laughs> so, thanks for. Thanks for yeah, no worries, my pleasure. I was, I was actually, I was actually yeah, going to say, like, I was actually going to say, we're doing this on Zoom, so it's a bit like a two-way mirror in a way. <laughs> <laughs> that's a bit disturbing. Anyway, um, that's, a, that's another. That's another podcast. <laughs> or a carding night, even. <laughs> but but no like thanks thanks for coming along taking the time out this morning and yeah, no uh, and yeah thanks for coming matt do you want to say do the the outro? oh yeah i can I'll, I'll give it a crack mate um i've been paying attention to how you do it so hopefully i've got it down pat listeners if you've enjoyed the podcast make sure to share it with your friends and family and colleague and anyone else you know if you haven't enjoyed it share it with your enemies as andrew likes to say um it's a, it's available everywhere of course um so yeah appreciate you listening in and um we'll uh, we'll catch you when you've got nothing on i think thanks for now 